All right, well, uh, Paul Galliano and I are on vacation this weekend. We are uh, in Los Angeles, the suburb of Pasadena, attending Functional Mobilization 2, hosted by the Institute of Physical Art. Um, we are just finishing our third treatment day. Um, Paul and I happen to be partners. We've gone through some pretty crazy changes with my hip and my foot. So, so far, so good. We've found things we already knew would be true. My foot is quite dysfunctional. Dan's hip needs a lot of work. We've had some excellent strategies and already seen, like Dan said, made some great changes so far. So excited for learning a little bit more and see what else we can apply. Yeah, and um, we're very thankful for Landswick Physical Therapy for hosting this weekend and allowing us the excellent opportunity this evening to um, spend time with two gentlemen who are on the forefront of uh, progressing the field of physical therapy and two people that Paul and I greatly look up to for what they've done in the profession of physical therapy. Um, you know, this is the third time I've taken a course from Greg Johnson. Um, this is the first time I've taken a course from Brent Yamascha. And, um, you know, we're just very appreciative that they took time out of their day to um, hang out with us. And, and hopefully our listeners will be very appreciative of the wisdom that they pass forward to this evening. Yes, thank you, guys. Thanks for having us, guys. You're welcome. Um, you know, and if you guys are curious about Greg and Brent's story, um, please refer to the Institute of Physical Arts website of instituteofphysicalart.com um, for all of their course listings and their uh, faculty as they provide some outstanding, um, progressive, but very effective treatment for your patients. Um, so first off, Greg, what we'd really like to know here is how in the Institute have you and Vicki and your faculty members um, started to bridge the gap between our entry-level clinicians slash students and um, those who are in clinical practice and are really trying to strive towards being an expert? That is a great question, Dan, and I just want to thank both you and Paul for giving us this opportunity to share our thoughts tonight so that we can uh, maybe help to shed some light on some of these issues that I think are so much in the forefront of our profession. Uh, the question is one that, that even goes back to uh, the area of schooling. Uh, one of the challenges of going to a doctorate degree, of uh, putting ourselves into a place as a profession where uh, we are primarily educating so that the individuals can pass the board. And therefore, a lot of the education has to be shifted away from thought process, critical reasoning, being able to, to problem solve, and we shift more to how do we be able to gain the knowledge that we have to do for a rote learning type of uh, process. Therefore, I think it's really in the schooling, in some way or another, of, of first of all, how do we get students to develop a passion for this profession that they've gone into, and for many of them, going into a great deal of debt to do it. Uh, that's what I see as the real critical component, is that a lot of students come out of school and have yet to have an experience of the power of physical therapy, of the power of manual therapy, of its ability to change human's life and for them to be able to be involved in that process. And so I would say that's the real first area that I think we have to discover. How do we provide them that vision ahead of time? Second of all, I think we have to really develop 
uh, better clinicals for them to be able to go on, where they, in those clinical settings, uh, get to be able to see treatments going on that they can see the problem solving. They can see the evidence being applied to their care, where they can see individuals that so care for their patients that they're willing to go the extra mile to make sure that that patient gets the best care that they can possibly get. It's that passion that comes out of that environment. For myself, I was really lucky and blessed to be able to be with Maggie Knott and spending my first seven years with somebody who could touch a patient and make a difference. And that was just something that led me to the place where today I believe I can help anything, you know, that at least I'm willing to try, that I, that I have that passion for my patient, that every one of them is an individual that needs to have individual care and individual solutions for their problems. Uh, and so I would like students to be able to see this. We get individuals in our classes that have been out for 10, 12 years that just through watching the care we provide during the demonstrations in the class that walk away and say, I had no idea. Uh, I have been so bogged down in this profession, not really knowing the potential that I have. And so for me, a lot of it is about how do you help them tap that existing potential? How do you give them a vision? How do you set up a scaffolding for them to exist in? How do you go through a progression? And whether it's our institute or another institute, they need to choose someplace, particularly those who desire to become manual therapists. And that's in neurological care as well as orthopedic and sports care. How do, we, how do they be able to have some kind of guidance through a scaffolding? For us, we have residency programs, fellowship programs, and everyone can work towards a certification process that provides them some kind of structure in their studying. So I, I really believe that we, we need multiple prong approach to be able to help bridge that gap. But I think more than anything is how do we reach students who are in an undergraduate or in a graduate area of training with instructors who emphasis is really to help them pass a board. And in many cases, don't have the clinical skills because they're at the doctorate level. They've only been out of school, many of them, for only a short period of time. But they're at this doctorate level, and they're not really ready to be able to show them and to demonstrate the power of manual therapy. I want to feed off something real quick, um, just because I think you hit on something so important where you need to have that excellent clinical rotation, really experience what physical therapy is capable of. Our profession as a whole just tends to lack knowledge across the just world as far as what we are able to do. And I love that you guys do have the opportunity for students to actually come to your site. So mm -hmm. Now, of course, it takes a little bit more planning. So for any students out there listening or anyone who has friends, family, someone looking at going to PD school or is starting to look that route, you guys want to touch really quickly on what you would like to see for a student to come through and have such an amazing clinical rotation at your facility? Sure. sure. I'll, I'll take this one, guys. And, and again, thanks for having us. Um, as a director of the Steamboat Springs Clinic in Northwest Colorado, we have an affiliation with about 14 different universities across the country. And we routinely have two, up to, anywhere from two up to five uh, doctoral interns that have applied and come out to Steamboat. Our, our clinic is hopping with uh, observation and experiential learning through the venue of a, of a mentorship experience. Um, part of it is just the logistics of getting a university contract. Um, it's as well as we do require our interns to be in the latter phase of their education. 
we do ask that they uh, look at taking one to two of our courses. Uh, honestly, the, the best experiences are the students that have taken more than that. We've had students come through that have taken all five to six core courses uh, from the Institute of Physical Art by the time they get to our affiliation. And, and they just get much greater responsibility within being able to practice uh, in, in that lab. It's, it's physical therapy is still very much an apprenticeship experience. And so back, uh, back to the universities, we, we look at uh, this all across the country and we set up these affiliations. Um, I'd like to just chime in a little bit on that bridging the gap. Um, and in my mind's eye, I kind of see this, this curve, this learning curve, it's a continuum. You don't just arrive at expertise through a, through a jump. Usually there's a learning curve. And I've seen young clinicians take off on a trajectory that, that really blows me away. Um, and, I, and I comment on that because I didn't have a, a super fast start out of my schooling experience. I had, uh, you know, hopefully none of my preceptors are listening now. Actually, <laughs> actually I had one really good affiliation. Um, but it was in an inpatient setting. And then I had one that really, really struggled to find a pathway into a world of orthopedic physical therapy. I wasn't even sure what manual therapy was at the time. Uh, but it was through seeking out for me. I think there are three types of people out there or three types of scenarios. One is a person like me that had a lot of just desire. And I, and I sought out learning environments. I took a, a lesser job out of school to get mentored. And then when the timing was right, I made a shift to an orthopedic practice in which there was, again, a little bit of a sacrifice going from a hospital-based hospital good benefits to a private practice where private practices were struggling at the time to get that mentorship experience. I think the second is the person that really doesn't know what they're missing. And it's not until they stumble across somebody that kind of tells them, hey, why don't you check this out? Um, and that person is just fortuitous enough or blessed enough to go into a scenario where they're kind of led into an experience. They weren't looking for it, but they end up finding it through, uh, through word of mouth, through an acquaintance. The third really comes back to clinicians, long practicing clinicians that are considered experts in their field. And I think one of the challenges is creating space within your private practice or in your hospital base to really seek out a grassroots effect to mentor students to put yourself out there and, and you've arrived at such a great skill, but yet what's going to happen when you move on? And, and that's one of the things that is so impressive about me with the Johnsons, with the faculty, is that we all lean towards the mentorship process. We are busy, we have families, we have lives, we love to live, but we take the time to teach and to seek out mentorship. And, and I, I look at it in those framework. You know, you guys have provided some really valuable insight that I recently participated in a um, panel discussion. I wasn't a participant, but I was an audience member. And some of the things that a recent graduate and a graduate who had been out five years hit on those two things that you guys kind of just touched about, about mm -hmm. we get so bogged down in school studying and learning all this material to try and pass national exam that we lose the passion and the rationale of why we went into this profession. Yeah. And then the student that, that or the graduate who had been out five years said, well, I lack the mentorship. So I feel like I haven't developed this 
clinical reasoning, and I know that I'm in this profession to help people, but she was kind of struggling and grasping to find what she could latch onto to help her grow. So, you know, I mean, again, I've been fortunate enough to have multiple courses with you, Greg, and I've been able to see your passion for the profession live out in your teaching. What really fuels you internally to continue to do this? What'd you say, 20 courses you've taught this year? Mm -hmm. What continues to fuel that passion that is very contagious, um, at least that I see is very contagious Every course in, I've been in, in the courses? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'd be curious to, to hear on your insight and then Brent, you on what you think fuels Greg's passion. Well, I think that's a fascinating question because I don't know that I've taken the time to analyze precisely <laughs> why I am the way I am. You know, do you say, when something's working, do you really sit down and try to say, why is it working? And in, I've spent my life in manual therapy doing something that works and then trying to figure out why it worked and then figure out how to teach it. That, it, that creates within oneself a process of analysis. Early on, having influences from many great manual therapists, I, all I did, I didn't take a vacation for my first seven years at Kaiser Vallejo. No, I took one in my sixth year. Everyone was taken up by continuing education. So if McKinsey came to the country or Ragapato or Maitland, I was there at their feet watching. If, when uh, I got a chance to study with Ida Rolf and Mold Schaefeld and Kreiser, whatever it was, or even Berta Bobath, I wanted to, to learn. So I think it came from an insecurity of not knowing enough and a passion to want to know more. But it was all founded in the fact that that patient that was my responsibility, I wanted to be the best I could be for them. I wanted to absolutely provide for them. And then there was that point where as I got better and I got more demands on me, I started realizing, wow, I can teach others what I do to duplicate what I'm doing. So the passion for me is now to really pass it on to mentor others because they can treat many more individuals. And so I see this as transformational. I see that every patient in chronic pain that is improved, we have a better planet. And so as much as I believe in recycling, as much as I believe in everything else, all those things to make this a better planet, I believe that my personal gifts and tools and skills it lend itself to the population of chronic pain and ultimately the enhancement of function of the human race so that we can have a better planet to live on and each person on it can be in a better place. And so that's why, for me, mentorship and passing on what what blessings and skills I've been given and developed is an important component. I, I would say that some of the things that attracted me, and then I'll, and I'll talk about Greg, but what attracted me to the IPA paradigm was some of the, the integrity of, of the clinicians that were teaching these courses was a draw for me. And, and I had interviewed different, different groups, and I had taken a lot of different courses, 
but there, there is something that you guys have experienced in the back row of our class. <laughs> hey, so it's, take it's, up it's great. Row, right? You know, if you're going to be in the back row, have the energy that you guys have. It's, it's very encouraging. <laughs> there's, there is a, there's a congeniality. There is a community experience. And, and I think sometimes we say family and it gets a little bit cliche, but there was something that I was drawn to within the context of these amazingly educated individuals all sharing passion and all sharing some some beliefs and and i i would say that there's a scriptural principle about it being more blessed to give than to receive and so if i could pick a word right now for greg outside of being um, you know inspiring and passionate and tireless it's also selfless that somehow uh, greg and vicky um, have found this place in, in, in a discovery of how they give that is selfless. And out of that comes this incredible reward. It's almost like it's selfish because you receive so much back when you are seeing lights go on for the first time in someone. You're seeing someone get energized. That, that's part of what I, what I see in both Greg and Vicki and so many of the others. I didn't meet Greg until the third course. Um, but I, I knew there was something about the methodology, and I'm like, well, I've got to meet the guy that created this, because <laughs> if his people teaching it are, are that passionate, uh, who is this guy? And, he, and he's selfless. <laughs> he's selfless, and he continues to, I think he continues to evolve as a clinician, and he, and he doesn't stay static. And I think at the end of the day, we all want to grow, and, and if we're going to spend that much time away from family, we want to we have it be meaningful. Yeah, I think you guys hit on a, a couple of things there that um, are huge attractors for um, anybody who's looking to better themselves. And, you know, you mentioned today, Greg, about how when you're in with your fellows, a lot of your fellows see things that you hadn't previously seen which takes a lot of humility to say that, right? I mean, it does. Mm -hmm. um, and we can tell that it's heartfelt. It's genuine. And that's the thing that continues to bring me back. I mean, yes, the techniques that you teach and that you've discovered are transformational in patients' lives and they're transformational in my life. Um, Thank you. but it's because it's real and you can feel the differences and you can see the differences. You might not always be able to explain why, but I think that's something that's important for our, you know, our listeners to reflect upon is, do I always have to know why it worked? Hmm. No, you don't. You don't always have to know why it worked. You have to be willing to try it again to see if it worked again or if it was just pure dumb luck, right? Um, but the passion at which you guys deliver the material and fill in gaps on clinical reasoning is instrumental. And for people who are looking for a path, it may not be the Institute of Physical Art because they may not want to do functional manual therapy. But finding the path for them in a course sequence that is logically created, 
that has validity behind it is really important. And I think the why becomes a really important question. You guys have talked a lot about you know, finding a great mentor and finding what makes you passionate about therapy. Something I always find quite interesting is whenever I have a new student come through, it's very evidence-based practice. They want to know what is the research behind it, what does the research say. And something that I really appreciate you talked about, Greg, was we have a lot of evidence, we have a lot of research in the sciences, the basic sciences that we know that are steadfast laws. Uh, and then you're a great researcher yourself, but where do you find is the important line between evidence and then actual practical experience you've had in the clinic, and where do you bring the two together? Well, you know, I, this has been something that has emerged so much. When I got out of PT school, uh, very little was ever talked about scientific evidence. Uh, we were talking more about logic, principles, uh, problem solving. The emergence of the recognition of the importance of science, the importance of the scientific process, the importance of the discovery, the seeking truth about the human system, trying to find connections between different components of the human body and, and how things degrade and how things enhance themselves. All this is such a great fascination. But right now we're just looking through that looking glass that is very clouded because we know so little about this amazing body when you just look at the scientific evidence. If you look at the guide to physical therapy and the limitations as to what really is available to us as a pure scientific process, we are responsible as clinicians to know the evidence, to be able to logically and clinically reason to apply the evidence. But when there isn't evidence there, we've got to be able to understand the function of the human body. We've got to understand its physiology. We've got to understand its biology. We've got to understand in individuals uh, the inflammatory process that they're going to go through that we can't say is always evidence that we've got it there. It's just that we observe it. And we need to be able then to apply it to some kind of underlying principle. For me, uh, I've studied all the coursework that is based upon how do we manage pain. And so our our, our placement at the very top is, is the elimination of pain or the creation of a less painful state. And for me, what I had to always shift to is, how do I enhance function? How do I, in some way or another in a patient, stimulate them to desire to, to function at a higher level? And I've used that word multiple times now, and I'll try to find something else <laughs> as we go through here. But it's that, it's that looking at them from that point of view. If it is pain that's limiting them, then that's what I want to treat is the pain to enhance the function. I don't treat the pain for the reason of the pain, but the pain to enhance the functional experience. So then we can replace that with an optimal level of function. So my study has always been, how can that individual human, what is their optimal potential? So I've really shifted to everything I see. I see a paraplegic, not from the point of view of a paraplegic, but what could be his optional functional level. I take a look at somebody with five surgeries in their lumbar spine and a fusion, not from the point of view of a fusion patient, but what is capable in that system to now function at a higher level, and how can I give him hope? How can I give that person the, the desire to have a state of being 
that is better than they have right now and how can I discover that? And so in a lot of cases, it's about logic. It's about problem solving. It's about clinical reasoning and it's about pattern recognition of seeing thousands of patients and being able to apply that pattern recognition to that next patient so that you're a better therapist each time because each time you've learned from that experience. And my problem with an evidence-based practice is it isn't built upon itself, it's only built upon the evidence. And therefore the evidence should exist, but it can't be the only thing we do because we don't have a way to learn upon it because when it fails, we don't have a pathway to apply the next technique because we're not trained in clinical reasoning. We're not claim, trained in clinical think, in critical thinking. And that is really what it is. it is. It is that process of having a problem and applying everything in your potential to solve that problem. Most of it has to do with just logic. And I'd have to say to those average therapists out there who want to always ask what the evidence is behind it, is it do not have fear of trying something that's logical to serve that patient before you. And fear is what one of the reasons I'd say so many students get locked, is that they, they leave school fearful that they have to only do what is appropriate according to these guidelines. I think uh, just chiming in real briefly on this is that evidence-based practice really by its title puts it at kind of a, a king position. It's kind of a top-down sort of uh, a prescriptive prescription. And um, The shift of the terminology to an evidence-informed practice is something I would like to emphasize mm -hmm. for your listeners, that an evidence-informed practice puts evidence on a level playing field with the two other pillars, or what, what Sackett called the three-legged stool, is that there is the patient's value system. It's the patient's belief and the patient expectation for what they want out of that physical therapy session is equally weighted to an evidence-informed practice. The clinician's experience, which goes to the heart of this conversation. How do you get clinicians to have better experience at getting to making the right decision at the right time? That clinical reasoning component that is equally weighted in terms of how decisions are going to be made for a particular PT session. And so I think you'll hear more of that as you attend some of the uh, American Academy conferences, as you go to CSM. There, there is more of that shift towards evidence-informed. And sometimes that doesn't always reach the academic level. And, and it takes, again, I think a grassroots and a podcast to say, maybe, maybe look at evidence in a little more equal weighting well, I think there's an, an, a, an additional way that we can look at evidence, which you guys have kind of hit on, and you hit on a little bit more in class today, that at times it's our job as practicing clinicians to take the evidence and break it and prove that, wait, this isn't what we see in clinical practice. And really, it's then our responsibilities and our connections, whether it's to a foundation that, that supplies grants or back to an academic institution, to let those researchers know hey, I challenged this with X number of patients in the clinic, and I'm not seeing that that is clinically applicable. Let's collaborate together and find out how we can make this clinically yes. applicable. Yes. Um, that's what I see with evidence-based practice or evidence-informed practice yes. is, like you said, it is our job to be 
up on the the hottest gut biome research or the amateur soccer players who have short versus normal hamstring length and the incidence of injury and you know all of those different things but then to take it back and say how can i break what we've just learned or what was just published or is it really quote unquote truth because i can't break it let and me, like you let, said better it too you collaborate yes. and better it and sorry yes. i apologize please no 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 I FOMPed in 2012, which took place. So I FOMPed is the International Federation of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy that gave rise to the American Academy, uh, who governs our manual therapy fellowship programs. And I FOMPed 2012. Roger Carey is one of the more prolific researchers out there. He, he's one of the researchers that brought to light cervical arterial dysfunction and not just looking at the vertebral artery, but the whole carotid system. He has done a lot of other research in helping us establish some standards, right? Uh, another clinician that's done a lot of research alongside Paul Hodges was also on the stage, and they argued against the RCT as the gold standard because what patient fits all of the criteria of the RCT? The, the concept is that there's an N of one. And, and when that person walks into your room and doesn't match the profile for the for the research article you just read, you've got to figure something out, <laughs> right? Because that's going to break the evidence right there, Absolutely. right in front of you. Yeah. And so I think that there is some room within the dialogue for it not to be either or, but a little bit of a collaboration. Because even some of our academic folks, those that have moved and shifted to research, are, are really sharing a little bit more of the, of the sentiment that I think we're talking about here. On, on, that, on that same stage was Gwendolyn Joe, and uh, she was quite amazing, and she did this whole thing on clinical prediction rules. And what she basically came up with is that for the, all the scope of whiplash patients that you'd get, you'd need 1.2 million cl clinical prediction rules to be able to cover all the different factors of how to treat them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, isn't that amazing, you know, to 1.2 million clinical prediction rules to learn. And so I think that uh, our, our profession has swung the pendulum in that direction, and it has now come back to more of a middle stance where we understand that it's important uh, to develop these guidelines. I don't call them rules, but they're guidelines to assist young therapists in their process of developing pattern recognition. Well, gentlemen, I very much thank you for your time this You're evening. Um, it's very appreciative of Paul and myself and um, those who are participating in our Therapists in Motion podcast series from Spooner Physical Therapy based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, we're very appreciative of the both of you and the Institute. Um, we look forward to hopefully collaborating with you guys again on a podcast. Um, we're looking at maybe coming up to Steamboat and spending some time up there if um, we're, we're able to. Um, again, thank you to the Institute of Physical Art, um, Spooner Physical Therapy, and Lands with Lands with physical therapy for hosting uh, FM2 this weekend. Thank you, Jess. You're more than welcome. welcome.